right. A trivia question. What's the only word that's the same in every language? Anybody know what that is? Hallelujah. That's right. And what does it mean? Praise the Lord. Amen. Okay, we're going to conclude our, our uh, series called Healing Hands on Psalms 26. Psalm, oh, sorry, Psalm 23, verse 6 this morning. Psalm 23, verse 6. It's entitled Habitation. We left off last week with uh, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over, runneth over. I made the point, just in review, I made the point that that word anoint is not the same word that you see throughout the rest of the Bible where it has the word anoint. It doesn't mean to, to be empowered to do what God is calling you to do beyond your physical and mental and spiritual ability to do it in and of yourself. So that's what the, anoint, the word anoint normally means. It means that God is going to put his power and his spirit on you to do something beyond your own ability, to do it in his power. That's not what this word means. This word means uh, to be made fat, to, to be um, whole and healthy. So if you look at the opposite of that word, you would say, this is the opposite of spiritually emaciated. This is... Um, the opposite of spiritually weak. This is the opposite of spiritually anemic. It means that you have a sense of confidence before God ever anoints you with the spirit, you feel better about yourself, your self-esteem, your confidence. You're not walking in shame. You have a sense that everything's gonna be okay. This anoint is that, you know, I'm not who I used to be and I'm not who I'm yet going to be and God's gonna use his spirit to help me to be who he's called me to be, but right now I'm feeling pretty prosperous, abundant, and fat right where I am, and I'm not feeling down on myself, I'm not feeling condemned, I'm not feeling shamed, I'm not feeling guilty, I'm not feeling less than. David, a father whose son is seeking to kill him and take over the throne, is probably feeling a bit spiritually anemic, lacking his confidence as a parent. You hear this morning, lacking your confidence as a parent? down on yourself for regrets of things you should have done, shouldn't have done. May God anoint you with fatness. That's what that means. Can we get past that? In other words, can we put that under the blood and move forward? None of us are perfect. Okay, that's that what that, that word anoint means. Now we come to the verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord Forever. Wow. Let's break it down, shall we? Surely. He said, well, what do you have to say about this word, surely? Well, having said all that David has said in the psalm, in the first five verses, his conclusion is the word surely. Surely. Of course. Um, of, you know, it, it just, how be it, certainly, or Truly or wherefore, because of what I said, because that's his nature, because he's a good shepherd, because he prepares the table, because he leads me in paths of righteousness, because that's his nature, that's what he does, that's who he is, that's who I can count on, because he'll never forsake me, surely, of course, without question, I don't have any question whatsoever, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
Listen, if you're here this morning, you've heard things about God or you've talked the Christianese language long enough, you know what to say, when to say it, even in conversations. The question is, do you mean it? We're going to pray for healing after this message. Surely God will honor our prayers. Because it's his nature, certainly because of the nature of a good shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness, surely, of course, certainly, without question, we approach this thing that he is going to heal. Surely. Not an empty uh, prose, not empty rhetoric, not words that you're supposed to say so someone can say, yeah, amen. No, we really believe that. Surely. Of course this is going to happen. Why would we think otherwise? It is a distinct train wreck to worship God and proclaim his goodness and read his word and pray to him and, and acknowledge and exalt him and magnify him and lift him on high. And then when it comes right down to it, I don't know, Lord, if you want to, I don't know, I guess you could. That's not fat. That's skinny. We've got to believe. That's all we have to do is believe. Surely. Surely. In keeping with the nature of the good shepherd, of course this will happen. In keeping with the good shepherd, of course he'll never forsake us. You see, this is important. Our doctrine needs to be informed by Scripture versus Scripture conforming to our personal doctrine. Praying for healing in people's bodies, marriages, finances, houses, whatever, households, businesses, is in keeping with Scripture. The doctrine of healing is here, and it's, you may have been taught otherwise, but don't allow yourself to take what you've been taught and, and let it be your doctrine when it, it's not the fullness of what God had to say. He, he does heal today. Obviously, he's healed people for the last four weeks in this church. So our doctrine needs to be informed by our Scripture versus our Scripture conforming to our personal doctrine. We don't decide. We take at face value. That's what we do. Surely goodness, agreeableness, pleasantness, uh, the approval of God, uh, the blessedness of God, goodness. God's approval of you and his people are evidenced by his blessings on them. Good, good blessings. Good, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. The, the whole Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is all good. See, surely goodness. Notice the word goodness isn't far from godliness. Goodness. We're about goodness. Like I said last week, this attitude that has been conditioned in many people's lives, we have to do away with. I talked to you guys about this Friday. It, it cannot be acceptable to follow Jesus Christ and then a, a, attain or, a, or, or further reinforce this attitude that I'm going to live week to week. That I'm, my life is about maintaining my existence. It's not. Your cup is to runneth over. 
He came that you might have life and life more abundantly. It may be that way for a time, but if you walk in obedience to the Scripture, you'll find that there's a goodness your way, a blessing your way, an approval of God, the favor of God, the, the prosperity of God. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel, but there's a prosperity that can't be financial, but it can also be relational, physical, emotional. You see, God wants your cup to runneth over in his lavishness and his extravagance. That's his nature. So if I look at the extravagance of God, the leftovers of God, the abundance that God gives, to pour out upon you a blessing there's not room enough to contain, his whole nature is excessive. So surely, of course, why would I think otherwise? My life must be excessive too as I follow him. If he's pursuing me with goodness, my guess is he's going to catch me. There ought to be goodness in a man's life, goodness in a woman's life. There ought to be goodness in a home that, that just reeks of the presence and the essence and the nature of God. Surely that ought to happen. The only reason it wouldn't is if you've allowed your own doctrine to make the Scripture conform to it. Change your doctrine. God is excessively, lavishly putting his love on his people. We do not have the right. There's a lot of talks about, talk about rights today. You do not have the right. Sorry. You do not have the right to tell God he can't bless you. Nor do you have the right not to expect it. It's his nature. Don't ask him to be something he's not. We ask him to do things. He only does who he is. And he's a blesser. Don't ask to change him. Don't allow your expectations in doctrine to redefine the nature of God. He's a blesser. Now, if you want to do everything in his word the opposite way that he asks you to do it, don't expect much. Blessing. Surely, goodness and mercy. What is this word, mercy? This is... Uh, it's kindness. It's loving kindness. Uh, it's a kindness that is useful. Kindness that has no use really isn't the kind of kindness we're talking about. It's a, it's a kindness that has a purpose to it. It builds one up. That's at the very foundation of the word mercy. It is favor, but it's... Well, let's talk about it this way. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is withholding merited punishment. Let me say it again. Grace is unmerited favor. Mercy is the withholding of merited punishment. Mercy is not giving you what and I, you and I, what we deserve. Mercy is withholding punitive judgment. But it has to be judged, it has to be punished. It, a righteous judge has to punish something that is evil and wrong and sinful. Yeah, he did. On, in, and through his son on the cross. You're here this morning, you're beating yourself up for not being who you thought you would be or your life didn't turn out how you wanted it to be, as so far anyway. If you're in Christ, 
And if you're not, we'll give you an opportunity to accept him today. If you're not in Christ, well, then there is condemnation for you. God's not condemning you. Well, he doesn't need to. You are condemning yourself. What does he need to get involved for? But those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Withholding from you punishment you and I both deserve is mercy. And goodness and mercy are pursuing you today. We tend to withhold mercy from other people probably more than we should. As a rule, not everybody. And not everybody all the time. And not you and not me all the time. But we probably have a tendency, if we conform at all to the patterns and the influence of this world, which we all do on some level, then we probably withhold mercy more often than we should. In other words, we do condemn, or we do judge, or we do inflict punishment, verbal, gossip, or otherwise, upon those who we feel deserve it. And in the middle of it all, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Ouch. You mean this abundant mercy that he has for us can be thwarted or minimized or diluted in some way? Sure. Just don't extend it to anyone else. Oh, you'll, you'll have a problem, though, if you continue to do this on a regular basis. Your problem will be not, not a... That's something that's caught in your eye that maybe if you look in the mirror you can get out, but a pressure-treated two-by-eight, about 12 feet long, is called a plank. And when we have that in our eye, we tend to point out the imperfections and the speck in other people's eyes. And as you've heard me say, remember, the plank and the speck of sawdust in another person's eye came from the same tree. Mercy. Surely goodness and mercy If I'm going to be pursued by anything, please put mercy at the top of the list, huh? I mean, if you could choose who to be pursued by. I've been pursued by the police before with the blue lights and all of that. It it puts a feeling in the pit of your stomach some of you have never experienced before. And let me tell you something. It's attention-getting. And I can tell you this. Yeah, I saw those blue lights. Yeah, my life was a mess. But I think just beyond the blue lights, blinded in my rearview mirror and I couldn't see him, listen to me, guys. Guess who was right behind them? Goodness and mercy. The lights went out. Goodness and mercy kept pursuing me. Where do we fit in in this whole world? Really, I mean, what do you want from me, God? What do you want from your church? What do you want from your church in this culture? Well, I can tell you, I don't know the exact words. I don't know exactly how God would put it. It's in the Bible somewhere, but in summation, let me just say this. A divided culture needs a unified church. I know that much. A guilty, corrupt culture needs a confessing and repentant church. A frenetic, anxious culture needs a poised church, a mature church. A sick culture needs a church where healing's taking place. 
Chaotic culture needs a purposeful church. A canceled culture needs a church with new beginnings, new hope, new, new beginnings, man. This can happen. A reactive church needs a pro, a reactive culture needs a proactive church, and a murderous culture needs a loving church. Self-sufficient culture, an agnostic culture, an atheistic culture needs an anointed church. A debt-ridden culture needs a church with wisdom. A depressed culture needs a joyous church. I don't know what you're putting out there, but I know where the culture is. A virus-ridden culture needs a contagious church. What worldly voices are captivating this culture and what worldly voices are captivating you? Whatever they are, turn them down, turn them off. It's costing us a sensitivity to the voice of God. The voice of God should be more frequent and more prevalent in the church to the people who follow him than any other voice at any other frequency. We cannot repeat the same worldly message to the church over and over and over and cost us a listening to, a hearkening of the voice of God. To who, to what are you conforming? We are the bride of Christ. We're the ambassadors of reconciliation. We are the witnesses. I'm not talking about a Christianity where you put a crucifix around your neck and you go about your business and you call it following Christ. I'm talking about the people who deeply, the salt and the earth, the deeply committed, loving, prayerful, interceding, loving, merciful, good people of God will change the direction of this culture once they turn off the world's voice and turn on his and get on their face, turn from their wicked ways, then will God heal from, hear from heaven and heal this land. And if we're, if we're looking to heal it in a different way, you might just be out of sequence. My people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. What does that say? If my people who are called by my name, can't hear you and can't turn from their wicked ways but only point out the shortcomings of the world, who's supposed to be doing that anyway? We have to be careful. We are people that are pursued by goodness and mercy. We are to be apprehended by goodness and mercy. Surely this is to happen. This is the nature, the nature of God. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. In the Hebrew, it means put the flight. Goodness and mercy have been put to flight. They've been sent uh, like apostolic harbingers of goodness and mercy. Sent from the throne of God by way of Calvary to pursue God's people. See, the thing about David was and, and I, I get where he's coming from. He couldn't say what we can say. See, David couldn't believe what we could believe. David didn't know what we already know. See, he said, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's not even it for you and me. That's not even close to it. You see, it's not that goodness and mercy are following us and trying to catch us. It's that goodness and mercy haven't inhabited us. They dwell within us. 
Like, I don't need, at this point in time, in light of the cross and Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, I would sell God short if I thought that I could outrun goodness and mercy or that I could actually fail in my life to such an extent it would no longer pursue me. No, no, no. It can't leave me. It's in me. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. It's in my soul. My soul's been restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in me. It's not that I have to run from him anymore. I have to get rid of him. Goodness and mercy are in you, and they want out. Quickly. To a condemned world, a shamed world, broken world, a sick world, a twisted world. But they're following anyway. I guess David's right. I look at it this way. I am persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I get up in the morning and I have a plan for the day. I know where I'm going, who I'm going to meet. I got that part down. And that changes and it fluctuates. But what I have to be mindful of is, do I myself realize that in those events and those meetings and those spontaneous appointments that happen all the time, Am I a dispenser of goodness and mercy? Am I a voice that is a harbinger of the voice of God, the encouragement of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the wisdom of God? Whether it's in green pastures or the valley of the shadow of death, I've got to know whatever situation I walk into that I have inhabited in me, dwelling in me, tabernacling in me is the Spirit of God. And as I said, he wants out. So follow me all the days of my life. I just turned 59. Ooh. <laughs> Every year now is, you know, 58 to 59 is not like 22 to 23. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I had this feeling, I don't know, just an inkling that 59 to 60 might be a little different than 58 to 59. But it's not about a number, is it? What are you doing in your life with Christ? When I start accentuating numbers, I'm talking about breathing. When I accentuate the life of Christ, I'm talking about imparting life to other people. Talking about really living, really living. You might say, I have 20, 30 years, 40 years. No, that, oh, I can't think of that. I have a long way to live yet. I could think that way. And I guess on some level, we probably should. We should be good stewards of the time that we have. That's all fine. But, but I'm selling myself short. I have eternal life. I don't have death. Do you have death? I don't have death. Anybody have death? No, no death. So not only do I have eternal life, I have what makes life eternal, just like you do, in me. So I'm a, I, as far as I'm concerned, wherever I go, as I impart things to other people, I, I'm the fountain of youth. So are you. You're a fountain of eternal things. 
You see, when you start giving things to other people, it's eternal things, not temporal. Eternal. All the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. It's his turn to dwell in me. It's his turn to dwell in you. Time will come when you get to dwell in his house. You're the house right now. Taking it to the house. He's bringing the spirit to the house. The day will come when you'll dwell in his house. And what will be the most useless thing when you dwell in his house? What will be the thing that you'll wish you did a whole lot more of, but will have no use for when you get to heaven? It's said another way, this is the only time we get to use it. Because it'll be so, so irrelevant when you get to heaven. It'll be so unnecessary. It'll be so too late. You'll only wish you had done it more. And what is that? Evangelism. What good is that in heaven? Make sure you don't have it backwards. Where you think evangelism is irrelevant today and going to be so important later. Uh, it's going to be useless later. What are we to preach to the choir? No. She'll follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. I will ca- be caused to sit. That's what that word dwell means. To cause to sit. To dwell comfortably. To sit and settle. I was in a dinner party the other night in a home I was a member of the first dinner party in a home that was brand new. And I noticed as we sat down and started eating, nobody shut up for like three hours. Constant conversation, back and forth. You almost sometimes couldn't get a word in edgewise. Everyone sat and settled. It was as if we needed to be together, we should have been together, we were together, but not just together in the same room, we were together. You know what I mean? We were together. We enjoyed, everyone was there, and enjoyed being there. Everyone gave and everyone took. I took a little bit more than anyone else when it came to some of the uh, appetizers. It's all right. God's excessive. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Question, when God sits in you every day and settles into what you have for the day, does he feel at home? I know you're going to feel at home when you get there. Does he feel at home in you? That's an interesting thought. Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It means all the days of my life. Hmm. Here's my thought. The shepherd has healing hands. He feels the sheep and the tumors and the blemishes and he tends to them. He puts ointment on them. He He tries to ascertain what sacrifice is acceptable when the shepherd puts his hands on the sheep. He has healing hands. He holds our hands and he leads us in paths of righteousness. He has hands that make us and kind of get on our back and just kind of on our shoulder and kind of push us down and makes us to lie down in green pastures. He holds our hand when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He's a hand holder. He's a toucher. He likes to touch. Jesus is always touching somebody. Just... I don't know, it's his nature. The good shepherd touches. He touches, and he imparts, and he identifies. 
If you're going to touch someone who is um, hurting, you empathetically touch it. It's a sign that, listen, I want to feel that pain. And boy, did he ever. I think he was a sponge for pain. Before he ever got on the cross, I think he lessened pain and took it on himself. No wonder to me he started shedding blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He already knew. He had already experienced this, this, this involvement in the human dilemma, in the, in the muck and mire of being human, in the sickness and the depravity and the leprosy. He had already been through it all, and that was just an appetizer. And he excessively handled that appetizer, knowing that the main course was to come, and it caused him so much intensity that he began to bleed out of his forehead from the just the pure thought of man as much as that collectively that was just a small uh, 50 by 185 mile territory now I'm going to take on the sin of the whole entire world that's just at that time but at every time even this time and next time and next time and next time boy I would have I don't know, forget me he started to bleed just the understanding the he had taken on himself this, this mission to heal the sick, the exhaustion physically, the spiritual uh, coming against Satan, the grill in his face, just like from a human standpoint, he's got Satan in his grill for 40 days. He's weak. He's all these things. He touched, and I think he was touched by sin. And it's stain. And it's shame. It's guilt. I mean, he had, makes it very clear to us. He didn't shy away from the pain and the shame and the remorse and the condemnation of tax collectors, publicans, sinners, prostitutes, drunkards, corrupt politicians, corrupt priests, for that matter. He experienced the depravity wallowed and swam in it for three years. Now the real cup is coming, and he knows that God always, the Father always fills the cup to overflowing. And he's going to consider, not going to sip that cup, he's going to guzzle the suffering of all mankind. I don't, I don't understand it at all. It's, don't pretend to, but I do know this. You're simple, childlike. You believe, trust, get out of yourself. God can use you to do anything. I stood up here some weeks ago and talked about healing. It's coming. Well, we've had aneurysm shrink. We've had heart and breathing issues set aside. And we've had someone come out of... I see you. We, we had an elders meeting. We lay, some of the people laid hands on a, on a lady, and she next day, she'd been nine months without smell or taste. The next day, it came back in abundance. You know, we had a, an intense back problem over here last Sunday that was just vanished. I asked you, anonymously, I asked you. Remember this Sunday? I asked you, I said, there's a, there's a marriage here that's on death's door. And I said, healing is not just physical. Relational, it's spiritual, it's financial, it's a number of things. It's emotional, it's mental. Now, is it a foregone conclusion? It's a day on the beach every day forward for this couple? No. 
We all know that. When she looks at me and says, it's a miracle, it's a 180-degree turnaround, turnaround. Something, something happened. That's what prayer does. That's what, you see, it's so simple. You want to know how to act? Look at the world and do the opposite. This is the single most divided culture in the history of cultures. It's half and half. Well, how does the church navigate such waters? How does the church see a difference? You get that church on the same page at the same time, doing the same thing, believing the same God without any other agenda but what he wants and when he wants it. That's how you bring a nation back. That's how he does anyway. I'm just a dude up here telling you, if we just get centered on one thing and believe him for one thing, you'd be surprised how he uses that in other areas. So I want to sing this song that confesses our need of God. And then I want to pray over this child, and I want to pray for healing in people's bodies. And I, I want to be bold about it, not embarrassed about it. I want to believe God for great and mighty things, which we do not know. And I want, to, I want him to confirm his word with signs following. And I'm not the least bit shy about it either, and I hope you're not. So let's sing this and prepare our hearts to believe for God to move in people's lives in a special way. Amen.